5, verses 31 through 46, we have a depiction, a projection, if you will, to the scene at the judgment where Jesus is speaking and projecting the time when time is no more, when all will stand before God and Christ in the judgment and be judged through the Christ as the scripture reveals. Heaven and hell are real. Heaven and hell are eternal. And that will be the destination of all mankind, that is one of those two destinations, will be the destination of all mankind. And where that destination is for us, for anyone, will be determined by the Word of God. John 12, 48. Jesus made that clear. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And so Jesus makes that clear, that we will be judged by him in the last day, and that the standard of that judgment will be his word. But is there any judgment in which men are to be engaged until then? Any judgment at all? What did Jesus teach about it personally and through the Holy Spirit as he revealed through the Spirit to the inspired writers of the New Testament all of his will and everything that we need to furnish us completely to every good work? As we continue tonight our series in the Great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The thrust of our lesson tonight will be on the Lord's personal teaching because he did teach personally on this subject within the Great Sermon on the Mount at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And as we begin to look at Matthew 7, 1 through 6, we need to state, and you I'm sure already understand and appreciate this, that this is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages anywhere in the Word of God. The fact is that the Lord does allow for some kind of judging here as we await the final judgment. And the whole of the New Testament confirms this. In John 7, verse 24... Jesus himself said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so that statement, if we had no other statement at all, would tell us that as we await the final judgment of God through Christ, there is some judgment we are to exercise here on this earth as we await that final judgment. What type of judging is allowed. In fact, what type of judging is required, we should ask. And by the same token, we ask what type of judging is prohibited here in this text that we're ready for as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount tonight. What type of judgment or judging is prohibited here in Matthew 7, 1 through 6? Read the verses with me. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. What type of judging is prohibited here in Matthew 7, 1 through 6? Before we answer that question from the Scripture, let's first consider what type of judgment could not have been included in the Lord's prohibition here in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. When he said, judge not that you be not judged, what could he not possibly have been including here in this judgment that we're not to engage in? First of all, the judgment by civil courts. That could not be under consideration here. For example, in Titus 3 and verse 1, Paul writes, by inspiration, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. When we go to Romans chapter 13, a, a text with which I'm sure we are familiar, what are we admonished to do? Again, by the same writer, the Apostle Paul. We're admonished to be subject to the governing authorities, verse 1 of Romans 13. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. The only exception to, to this principle that is laid down here that we are to be subject to the judgment and the authority of the civil courts would be when that authority conflicts with the authority of God. In Acts 5.29, the apostle said, we ought to obey God rather than men. But when that authority of the civil courts, for example, does not conflict with the authority of God, then God tells us through his word we're to be subject to that authority. So when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, he could not have had in mind the judgment of civil courts. Nor could he have had in mind the judgment by the church toward the disorderly. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, for example, Jesus himself says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. The Lord's personal teaching on this matter in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is later reinforced 
by the inspired writing of the Apostle Paul. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. A few verses later, in verses 14 and 15 of that same second chapter, a third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And of course the situation which we have studied in times past, in recent times for that matter, in 1 Corinthians 5. The situation there where the man was living no doubt with his stepmother is the indication. The church was frankly puffed up about it, it seemed, rather proud of their, uh, of their leniency, it seems, to be the indication. And Paul wrote to them to rebuke them and to admonish them to withdraw fellowship from this individual who would not repent and, and to take the steps that Jesus requires, as in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, 14 and 15, the verses we have just read. The situation in 1 Corinthians 5 required discipline. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And then, thankfully, they followed Paul's instruction, and they did withdraw their fellowship from this brother, and he repented. The second letter to the Corinthians clearly indicates that he repented of his sin and was restored to fellowship. So therefore, when Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged, he could not have had in mind judgment by the church toward the disorderly because that is clearly commanded. Nor could he have had in mind private judgment toward those who sin. The assessments that we as individuals must make about others at times. Look at Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 and 16. In this same Sermon on the Mount a little bit later, we'll come to these verses. We'll preview them now. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And in 1 John 4 and verse 1, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. The text, the context is, do not believe every Teacher, do not believe every teacher, every spirit. Spirit stands here clearly for teachers. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So as an individual, I am charged with the responsibility to exercise private judgment toward those who sin. I'm to beware of false prophets. I'm not to believe every teacher, but I'm to try them and to weigh their teaching against the teaching of the New Testament. 
And when we come back to the immediate context in which we are studying tonight, Matthew 7, verse 6, if you look at verse 6 of Matthew 7, within the same context in which Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, verse 6 requires a certain kind of judging. It has to. Listen to it again. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. If we are to follow that admonition, then we have to exercise judgment. We have to exercise judgment. How do you know who the dogs and the swine are, as they're described here? You have to have some assessment of them in order to know not to cast your pearls before them. In other words, and we'll talk more about this a little bit later, there are those who will not only reject the gospel, but they may hurt you in the process of it. That's what Jesus is saying here. You have to make a judgment, if you will, or a determination in those situations. And we'll see examples of that as we look further into our lesson tonight. And so, what judgment could not have been in Jesus' mind when he says, Judge not that you be not judged? He could not have had in mind the judgment by civil courts. He could not have had in mind judgment by the church toward the disorderly. He could not have had in mind the private judgment toward those who sin, because all of these are righteous judgments. And remember John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, what judgment is prohibited then? What does Jesus prohibit in this text when he says, judge not that you be not judged? What is prohibited here? It's consistent with the whole of New Testament teaching to say that Jesus right here in this great Sermon on the Mount was prohibiting unkind, unmerciful, and unfair judgment of others. That's what he's prohibiting here. This would include judging a person's motives. You can't know a person's motives. It would involve judging the thoughts of the heart that men cannot see and that only God can see. And we cannot and should not and dare not exercise that kind of judgment. It's the same kind of judgment that James condemned in James 2.13 when he wrote, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so, it's consistent with the whole of New Testament teaching to say that he was prohibiting unkind, unmerciful, unfair judgment of others, judging the heart. Also, matters of conscience, as in Romans 14. We should not judge a matter of conscience with an individual. And that's what the whole chapter of Romans 14 deals with. In other words, there are those who have some convictions in matters of opinion. They have, matter, they have conviction of conscience in certain matters of indifference of, or opinion. And we should not judge them as long as the one who holds that conviction of conscience does not press that point 
of division or, or press his matter of conviction of conscience to the point of division. In other words, an individual should be allowed to follow one's conscience, one's convictions about matters of indifference. Romans 14, for example, Paul deals with the matter of eating of meats. And some uh, had a problem with eating meats that had been offered to idols. Even though there was nothing associated with idolatry about those meats, once they were, once they were taken to the marketplace and offered for sale, then there shouldn't have been a problem with eating them, but there were some who had a conscience about that. Paul was saying, don't, don't force that individual to violate his conscience. Don't judge him harshly in the matter of that conscience issue. And it is with this principle in mind that we examine Matthew 7, 1 through 6, more fully. Look with me at the latter part of verse 1. Jesus points out here that harsh, hypercritical, and hypocritical judging will produce a bitter harvest for the one that's involved in that kind of judging. Judge not, here it is, that you be not judged. There's the bitter harvest that follows the one who engages in this kind of judging. And then the Lord expands that thought in verse 2 when he says, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know, men usually receive from others what they give. Not always. But many times they'll receive from others what they give. And I believe that's involved in the statement here. But the final judgment would also be involved. The final judgment would also be involved here because a censorious criticism of others is sinful. To censor others in violation of what Jesus teaches here is sinful. And that sin will confront us and will condemn us in the judgment if we're impenitent and do not repent of that. Look at the attitude of the Jews, for example, in Jesus' day. They despised the Samaritans. They looked down on publicans and sinners. You look at the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Oh, he was so glad that he was not like this publican. He was glad that he did all of these things, went through all the motions that a good Jew would go through. And yet, when it was all said and done, literally, the prayer was said and done, who went away from the temple that day justified? It was not the Pharisee. It was the publican who wouldn't lift his eyes even toward heaven, but simply beat upon his chest and cried, Father, have mercy upon me, a sinner. They despised the Samaritans. They despised the publicans and the sinners. And they are a classic example of the kind of censorious criticism and judgment that Jesus condemns here in Matthew 7. You remember how the Sermon on the Mount began? It began with the Beatitudes. Think about it. If we truly apply the Beatitudes as we should, we'd absolutely be free of this kind of wrong judgment in our lives, wouldn't we? If we really apply them, we won't run into this judging issue. It'll never be a problem for us. Because you see, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
those who recognize their undone condition. And then blessed are those who mourn. The poor in spirit recognize their undone condition. They're humble in the sight of God. They've humbled themselves. They mourn over their sins. They seek forgiveness of their sins through the gospel plan that God has given through Jesus. They then walk meekly, blessed are the meek, through their lives, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, drinking the water of life and eating the bread of life, showing mercy to others, being peacemakers and therefore being called the sons of God, and even rejoicing when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see the progression of the Beatitudes if they are applied to our lives as they should. We're not going to fall into the sin of improper judging that Jesus condemns here. Yes, application of the beautiful Beatitudes would solve a lot of issues, wouldn't it? It would solve a lot. A logical progression from being poor in spirit to being willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then as we continue to look at this text in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, in verses 3 through 5, Jesus illustrates the wrong judging. He gives us an illustration. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Some translations read the beam that is in your own eye. You've got a log in your eye, and you're trying to remove a speck from your brother's eye. That's the illustration. A modern-day modern expression that would be equivalent to this would be people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But that's what Jesus is, is calling for here, constant self-examination. He's calling upon us to examine ourselves constantly and to make sure, to make sure that our vision is clear enough to be able to help our brother or sister when our brother or sister needs help. You see, removing a physical speck from one's eye requires clear vision on somebody's part, doesn't it? I don't want somebody trying to get something out of my eye who can't see what he's doing. You want clear vision involved. And correcting spiritual vision in a brother or a sister who needs some correction with that spiritual vision, that must be done with humility by the one who's seeking to do that. It must be done with humility by one whose influence is not hampered by hypocrisy. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, a passage we've looked at quite often. Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Paul is in harmony with Jesus in this statement in Matthew 7 and in Galatians 6. Paul is in perfect harmony with the Lord, as we would expect, obviously. Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. And so judge not that you be not judged is not saying don't try to remove the speck, but make sure you've removed the plank in your own eye before you attempt to remove the speck. In other words, make sure that you're not being hypocritical in trying to help your brother or sister regain their spiritual vision, so to speak. In fact, Matthew 7, verse 5, calls upon the hypocrite here to do what? First, look at that word first. First, remove your own sin. That's what he's saying. Remove your own sin, and then you'll be consistent in your efforts to correct your brother. Now, he's not saying you have to be sinless in order to correct your brother. He's saying don't be hypocritical. Make sure that you are walking in the light and that your sins are covered by the blood of Christ and that you don't have some glaring plank in your own eye that you are oblivious to while you're trying to tell somebody else how he or she should correct himself or herself. No, he's not saying we have to be sinless to try to help each other. We're just not to be hypocritical. But the key is... First, remove the plank, and then proceed with the process, the process of helping your brother or sister who needs help spiritually. Don't ignore the sin, but make sure your own is taken care of first. The final statement from Jesus on judging in this context is verse 6. And in Matthew 7, verse 6, we find a verse that absolutely demands judgment, as we mentioned earlier. It demands discernment. It demands judgment in dealing with others. Because Jesus says there are those who will despise the doctrine of Christ. And not only will they despise the doctrine of Christ, they'll despise the disciple of Christ who delivers or imparts that doctrine. And Jesus clearly says, when such people are encountered, the Christian is to shake the dust off his feet, and he is to move on to fertile soil. Well, what is required before we dust off our feet, so to speak? We have to make a decision. It requires the righteous judgment of which Jesus spoke in John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. Let me give you an example of this very thing. Two examples, as a matter of fact. One from Acts 13 and verse 46. In the first missionary journey, at a certain point in that journey, Paul and Barnabas ran into opposition. Opposition that the Jews had stirred up against them. When the Jews, verse 45 of Acts 13, saw the multitude, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Now listen to verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. We're shaking the dust off our feet. We're making a judgment 
about you because you, in effect, have judged yourselves unworthy of the gospel, and we're moving on. That's judging. That's judging. But it is proper judging. Righteous judgment. And then one other example. In Matthew chapter 10, we could very definitely say that Jesus gave some judging instructions. Jesus gave some judging instructions in the limited commission in Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. Listen to these words. Jesus said, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Those are judging instructions that Jesus gave in the limited commission. It is sad indeed that Matthew 7 beginning at verse 1, is one of the most misapplied and misunderstood passages because what Jesus taught about judging is not complicated. What he taught about judging is not difficult at all. And yet some want to adopt a live and let live approach, and they want to seek an endorsement from Jesus in doing that. Jesus will be the final judge of all. Going back to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. In Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31, Paul, in his speech there, made it abundantly clear that the times of ignorance God winked at or overlooked, but now he's commanded all men everywhere to repent inasmuch as he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all men in that he has raised him from the dead. That judgment day is coming. And as we stated at the outset, the word will be the standard of judgment. Again, John 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Meanwhile, the faithful who await their appearance before the judge of all mankind on that day must proclaim far and wide the perfect law of liberty, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do that, to do that the way God would have us do it requires the Christian, requires the Christian to render righteous judgment and to refrain from unrighteous judgment. The final judge, Jesus Christ, through his teaching, has made, has made it absolutely clear as to what is righteous judgment and what is unrighteous. In other words, the honest seeker can clearly distinguish between the two kinds of judgment. And we can be assured that we're pleasing God in judging not according to appearance, but judging 
righteous judgment. When I tell you tonight, for example, as we close this lesson, that you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you must act upon that belief by repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and then that you must be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And when I tell you that unless you do those things, you're lost and in an undone condition before the God of heaven and before the Lord Jesus Christ, I am judging, but I am judging not according to appearance, but judging righteous judgment. Because the Lord himself said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And remember John 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. No, I'm not the final judge. I'm a lawyer in a sense, as is every Christian. We plead the law. But as we plead the law, there is a sense in which we become judges in the righteous judgment category and have to make decisions about individuals and about situations which the Lord has commanded us to do, not simply allowed us to do. And we cannot and dare not adopt the live and let live approach and believe that Jesus will endorse that in every situation. We can know the difference between righteous judgment and unrighteous judgment. And until the Lord himself comes again to judge the world, he has left the faithful with instructions as to how to judge righteously. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, we plead with you to do so tonight. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has strayed, who has been unfaithful to the church in a way that has brought reproach upon the church publicly, then the repentance should be as public as the sin. Private sins should be taken care of privately between you and God. And for all those who need no repentance, may you never lose sight of the absolute cruciality of judging righteous judgment if we're to be pleasing to God. We must not rebel against it, but we must, in fact, heartily, lovingly, and mercifully, mercifully engage in it as God would have us do. If you need to respond tonight, will you come as we stand to sing to encourage you?